The Guardian. And welcome to the Guardian's Jewish podcast. Sounds Jewish, like the wailing of klezmers or the rubbing of hands. I'm Jason Solomon, and in this month's show, it's all the rage amongst some of Israel's ultra-Orthodox women, the frumka, or a Muslim-style burqa. But why are these Jewish women covering up more than ever? And Amy Winehouse, what do Britain's Jews and Jewish mothers make of her? I think she's a very talented girl, but a bit gone off the rails at the moment. And with me to discuss whether the pop vixen has indeed gone off the rails is Naomi Alderman, an author of the critically acclaimed and rather wonderful novel Disobedience. Welcome to you, Naomi. Uh, And she's joined by BBC journalist and presenter of the recent hit documentary series Power to the People, Tim Samuels. And Tim, you've got a new documentary called The Poles Are Coming, uh, being broadcast on BBC Two this month. Presumably you don't mean the Polish Jews. Uh... Presumably not, or else my documentary's uh, gone very wrong. <laughs> it's gone uh, off the rails. It's gone right off. Thank you for the plug, yes. <laughs> well, it's excellent. Well, welcome to you both. And Naomi, how lovely to see you. Um, this is your first Jewish podcast. It is indeed is my first Jewish podcast. Fills you with excitement. I'm overwhelmed to be here. Good. Totally overwhelmed. And what part of northwest Jewish London do you come from? Where do I come from today? I come from Hendon, where I grew up. That was the so- that was the setting for your uh, novel Disobedience, which I enjoyed hugely. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, it was very. It was. I thought it was very brave of you to kind of uh, you know lift the lid or the Tupperware lid on Hendon. <laughs> Sometimes you just can't help but write about something, and then you have to take the people coming up to you in the street and going, "Your book was filthy and disgusting." <laughs> Which I've got from time to time. It's awesome. Really? So's Ben's bagels, but I didn't complain growing up. Uh, Tim, uh, you're not from Hendon. Uh, no, much further north, Manchester. Ah, one of those Manchester. Well, yeah, very lovely to have one of those Manchester Jews with us in the studio. Well, I think uh, the... We are an endangered species. Is it nice down here? It's nice to have electricity. Good. Makes <laughs> a change. Uh, well, I say you're wearing clothes today as well. Which as, is as opposed to what? As opposed to whatever it is you do in Manchester. Oh, rags, yes. rags, yeah. rags, Rags, well, yes. Up the chimney, you know, oh. it's got to be functional. Oh. <laughs> well, talking of clothes, that moves us very nicely into our opening topic for discussion. It's the controversial symbol of Islam's treatment of women. And for many, it's been a byword for backward attitudes to gender equality. But is the burqa coming to the Jews. I ask because a garment now known as the frumka, similar in style to the Muslim burqa, is now being worn by some ultra-Orthodox women in Israel. Sarah Peters spoke to the Jewish Chronicle's comment editor, Miriam Shaviv, who helped break the story in the UK, and she started off by asking Miriam about the legal case that brought this new trend to light. It was an exceptionally unusual case. The Beth Din in Jerusalem had really never seen anything like it. A man had requested to get divorced from his wife. He'd requested a um, a get, a Jewish divorce, because his wife had started wearing several layers of clothing and a Muslim-style veil similar to a burqa. Um, And in the ultra-Orthodox world in which he lived, that was absolutely unknown. And he found it so strange that he asked for a divorce, um, which the Beth Din, the Jewish court, granted. Um, However, she continued to appeal. She turned up to court wearing a veil which did not actually allow her to see. She needed a child to hold her hand, one of her ten children to guide her out of the court and the rabbinical judges, again, found this so strange, they actually accused her. They thought she had a mental illness and referred her to 
um, psychiatric evaluation. So it was a very strange case. The woman who was the centre of this divorce case follows a particular woman called Rabanit Karen. Can you tell me a little bit about this grouping of ultra-Orthodox women? Well, when this divorce case first came up, the press thought that it was just a case of one, what they considered to be a crazy woman. But over the last few months, it's turned out, it's emerged that she's actually one of about 100, 150 women. um, And they follow a woman called um, Rabanit, which means um, the wife of a rabbi, Bruria Karen, and she has taken it upon herself to dress with ten skirts, seven veils, um, she wears gloves over her hands permanently, um, and these women have basically decided to follow this Rabbanit Karen, um, who started a movement. Do you know why they've taken it upon themselves to do this? Well, these women believe that um, modesty is extremely, extremely important. The more modest you are, um, the more likely it is that the Messiah will come. Um, So they believe that with every skirt they wear, it brings the Messiah one step closer. Outside of the specifics of this case, is there any evidence to suggest that this is a phenomenon that is on the increase amongst the strictly orthodox communities around the world? Well, again, actually, women actually wearing veils over their heads and over their faces is very, very extreme. However, in the ultra-Orthodox world now, it used to be that, you know, you had to cover your elbows or you had to cover um, your, your knees. But over the last few years, there's been an increasing reluctance in the ultra-Orthodox press, for example, to show images of women, women and um, the figure of women is basically being marginalised. There was a case um, that was recently really prominent on the internet, prominently discussed on the internet, where an an Israeli ultra-Orthodox website reporting on the recent investigation into the 2006 war with Lebanon um, had a picture of the five judges who produced the report. One of them was a 70-year-old woman, or a woman in her 70s, Ruth Gavison, and the picture, they'd blacked her out. And they'd blacked her out because they don't want Haredi men, they don't want ultra-Orthodox men to see this picture of a woman, even though she's a judge in her 70s. Are there any similar cases of this happening in Britain? The issue of increasing, um, increasing pressure to be modest is true across the ultra-Orthodox world, here in the United States, in Israel, everywhere. Um, So it's certainly happening here as well, although I haven't seen women wearing burqas, Jewish women wearing burqas quite yet. Um, It is true that there is one rabbi in Gateshead, Rabbi Falk, who's written a guide to women's modesty, which is widely used across the ultra-Orthodox world, um, and which some people actually say is partially to blame for what they consider to be an overemphasis on modesty. Why is there no one fixed position on what on modesty and what women should wear in the ultra-Orthodox communities? I think that it's very much a reaction to what's going on in general society. I think that as general society becomes less modest, there's more of a um, more pressure for ultra-Orthodox society to become more modest. They feel People feel threatened. They feel that they have to protect themselves from what's going on in the outside world. So they become more and more and more modest. And the second factor is that really over the last few decades, well, the last decade or so, really, um, the ultra-Orthodox world is actually becoming more open and more integrated in the wider world 
more people are going out to more ultra orthodox people are going out to work in Israel. There is more exposure to the internet, although it's not very wide, but there is more exposure. People do have 3G phones where they can um, access the internet and get all kinds of texts. And I think that it's a community feeling a little bit under siege and a little bit threatened. And the reaction of that community is to close off in, in itself, um, to try to protect itself, to do what it does already even more so. And that includes modesty. If, you know, 12 years ago or 15 years ago, little girls didn't have to wear high stockings. Nowadays they do, right? There's constantly a pressure to do more and to be more modest for exactly those reasons. Miriam Shaviv there, comment editor of the Jewish Chronicle. Uh, Naomi Alderman, you were brought up in uh, a modern Orthodox mm -hmm. family, which is a bit different to an ultra-Orthodox, mm. isn't it? Presumably mm. you do, you weren't stuffed into a frumka at birth. God, well, no, I've never met anybody who wears a frumka, although... Um, some of the people that I knew growing up certainly were ultra-Orthodox. Um, I have ultra-Orthodox members of my family. I mean, it's, it's quite shocking, really, isn't it? When you, when you hear that, you just... It's hard, to know, it's hard to know what this could be coming from. In a way, it seems to me, it, it will be, it's, it's interesting to contrast this with the greater freedom and, and self-expression over the past, probably, decade of ultra-Orthodox men, where you've had things like the phenomenon of Matis Yahu, who's the, um, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish rapper. Uh, there's, uh, there are Orthodox Jewish comedians. There's, there are Orthodox Jewish young men producing music videos. There are never women involved in any of these activities. Um, I've certainly heard Orthodox rabbis say things like, the beauty of a woman is in her silence, which... I mean, I, I just find this hideous, well, you really. you get on this podcast with <laughs> that's for sure. It would be useless here. Well, yes, exactly. No, but I, but yes, yes. If I was sitting here thinking that my beauty was, was in silence, yes, I would be. Uh, no, absolutely. Not I, mean, much I, I do find this a, a, a slightly worrying trend that we're adopting uh, this kind of ultra-orthodoxy, mm. uh, whether it's, uh, it's it's something that, that comes from our religion or not. I don't know where you, where you stand on it, on it, Tim, but it seems to me that this is... Um, that this is kind of sort of a retrograde step, but you were just in Israel. You just come back from Israel. I can mm. tell by your lustrous tan. Well, thank you. Uh, you clearly weren't wearing a frumka yourself. Uh, not, no, I couldn't get one in my size. But um, I, it just sounds like a joke. It sounds like something out of the life of Brian, where the more layers you wear, the more skirts you wear, the closer mm. you are to the Messiah. It, it just sounds to me like a, a manifestation of illness than, ra it's, rather than it's a, a kind of serious help. religious commentary. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like it's, there's a dynamic in society mm. and there's a peer pressure. I mean, you know, you do see where whole groups of friends go from almost en masse and it sounds like something akin to that has happened. There's a, there's a sort of cultishness to it, isn't there? But, um, it, I mean, it does seem to me like it's a cry for help or it's, it's, it's a kind of self-expression, which is the only self-expression left to some of these women, where, you know, if you're supposed to just be silent all the time, then the best thing you can do, the most expressive you can be, is to be as silent, as covered up, as non-existent as possible. It's kind of like anorexia in that sense. It's a, it's, it's a way of um, making yourself invisible. Yeah, there's a, there's a sort of veiling of the, of the truth there. But, I mean, you... you so let's take a kind of more uh, understandable example. When you were growing up, what was the sort of the policy of covering up around in 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 a, in a, in a modern Orthodox? Certainly, let's let's do it in London. In in your area, what was the what was the, the women instructed to do? Yeah, I mean, 
I never went to these sort of schools. Certainly I knew girls who went to Hasmonean who were told that they weren't allowed to wear patent shoes in case something from their patent shoes reflected what was going on up their skirt, which I just <laughs> always thought was the Does most... Does that work? <laughs> Damn! <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> I've been looking at Ginger Rogers with, with far more... Well, I think uh... the, sh- the, the girl would have to have very, very broad feet and the shoes would have to be very, very shiny. But... Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the modern orthodox world, you would probably say, you know, knees and elbows is 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 the basic kind of, you know, what you learn to cover up when you go to synagogue. But at the same time, I mean, I think I think there's. What about a shaitel? Well, which is like a, a wig, isn't it? Uh, yes. Yeah. Where you, your family wears? Wear well, some people in my family do. My mother doesn't. My mother wears a headscarf, um, which used to be perfectly acceptable to just wear a headscarf, you know, when you when you go out or when you go to synagogues, just put a scarf on. Um, these days, people are wearing shaitals, which is a wig, plus a headscarf. So I definitely think there's a sort, there's a move towards this. I mean, you know, it's 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 almost like getting a bigger house than other people or getting a nicer car than other people. It's making sure that you're, you, it's not enough now just to have a separate, separate dishwashing bowls for for milky and meaty in your kitchen, you know, to separate out the milk and the meat cutlery. It used to be just separate washing up bowls, then it went to separate sinks. Now a lot of people have separate kitchens. Really? Yeah. So it's a real status symbol. It really is. I think in some ways it can be, yes. It's, it's... Well, they, you know, there's that, there's that polarisation now, isn't there, where the religious sectors of society are becoming more and more religious, the secular end of society is becoming more and more secular, and that middle ground is, is disappearing very, very quickly. <laughs> You'd have had to be living as a recluse or indeed knocked up in rehab not to have noticed that Amy Winehouse is one of the highest profile musicians in the world at this time. She may have had every detail of her drug problems put on the internet and written about, but she's also very, very talented. Rewarded recently, of course, with five Grammys, and she's also very, very Jewish. Come on. Don't say you haven't noticed. It's there in the face, in that North London dialect, the layers of makeup, and that hairdo that's seen more lacquer than my grandma has in her lifetime. So who better to hear from about Amy Winehouse than a bunch of hairdressers in Golders Green? I think she's a very talented girl, but a bit gone off the rails at the moment. Most Jewish parents wouldn't say to their children, "Sweetheart, I want you to be a singer." They would say, "I want you to be a doctor. I want you to be a lawyer. I want you to be a dentist." That's what you get. Yes. Meet you downstairs in the bar and home Your rolled up sleeves in your skull t-shirt You don't really get that from Jewish parents. You should get more support from her parents. Okay, to that age, you can't say, Amy, if you're going to do any crack, I'm going to lock you in and you're grounded for a week, can you? She's an adult. So what do you do? Try and help if she won't listen. Really? I think it's just being in that business that, that she's surrounded by drugs. And drugs keep a lot of them going. I think of her as a Jewish singer. Her dark hair, her facial features, her nose is a bit Jewish. My son knew her when he was young and he talks of her always as being Jewish. And being Jewish, you associate yourself with other Jewish people who have made it famous somehow. How many Jewish singers do you know? Exactly. No, 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 but you're talking about, you're talking about a handful. I mean, we are a minority. Jewish people are a minority in this country. And if you can make it in that business, being a minority, I think that's brilliant. Because, you know, there's 350,000 Jews in this country and 60 million non-Jews. So to have made it in that industry, I think, brilliant. Why not? 
I think her talents is her singing, not her religion. And a lot of people don't feel the need to put who they are in a very multicultural society anymore. Well, as we heard from those hairdressers there, Amy Winehouse is definitely Jewish. That's not exactly a news flash, but is she someone Jews can be proud of, Tim? Do you feel an affiliation with Amy? Did you know her back in the day? I just feel, I just feel very sorry for her, having gone through what she's gone through in rehab, and now she gets subjected to hairdresser commentary from Golders Green. That's probably going to push her right over the edge. Um, <laughs> What was the question again? Sorry. No, I mean, do you, do, you, do you feel that uh, there's a Jew? When you see her singing, do you see there sings a Jew? It's not my immediate thoughts. I mean, I think there is that awful Jewish tendency, isn't it? Whenever anyone comes on TV to, to identify, particularly if you're in mm. the room with someone who's not and you're trying to sort of show how impressive and cultured we are as a, as a race. Uh, I don't know. I don't hugely identify with her for, for being Jew. You know, she's a, a talented singer and, and whatnot. I did have a non-Jewish friend phone me up the other day and go, did you know Amy Winehouse is Jewish? Because this, this had just come up and I thought, yes, I've known this since her first album, obviously. We all know this about whoever is famous and Jewish. You know, you have to, you have to know on your radar who it is. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a Judah, isn't there? But there's yeah. a very it's a very small number of Jews on crack, uh, which let's uh, hope so. Which I you know <laughs> I, I you don't know for sure. Yeah. But um, but can you imagine? I mean, that's that's the, that was the shocker I think for my parents seeing Amy on White that she does mm. crack that almost disowned her like that, that that kind of rules you out of being Jewish now because of the crack. Well, had, oh. you, had your parents adopted her then? No, I mean they they wouldn't mind. But she's actually quite I find her she's a bit rude actually. She's got that kind of spoiled Jewish girl kind of pout <laughs> about her, which I actually don't like. I think she's kind of spoiled uh, cow and her, her dad indulges her and she says no 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 I'm not going if I said no 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 it'd be hard luck I'd be going whether <laughs> yeah. I said no 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 enough at times or not and tattoos as well I mean Jews don't have tattoos it's disgusting Naomi <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry not to be so disgusted my mum is, is my mum does not doesn't hasn't I think ever heard a song a single song of Amy Winehouse's but she heard that this poor Jewish girl was in was in such dreadful straits with the drugs and she, and she said to me, oh, I just want to invite her to come and stay at the house for a few weeks, you know, we'll just look after her, we'll give her some chicken soup, it'll all be fine. Is there a way that she could sort of, you know, do a song or something to say that she's Jewish publicly, proudly? Oh, I don't know, I don't know what that would do to her career. I think, I think you, can, you can celebrate where you've come from, but I, I don't know, I think in this country you've still got to keep things below the radar a bit, I think. Oh, you don't have to. I, People feel like you have to, but I think it would be better for the country and for the Jews in this country if we were just all a bit more open, it's frankly. Bit, it's just a bit cringy, though, isn't it, when you, when you celebrate things cringy? too much? But why is it Because we're assimilated and we're trying not to be persecuted and we keep our heads down. And... Who's going to persecute us, honestly? I mean, I agree with you. You know, not to, not to start a big a big argument here, but oh no, it's with... a debate show. You could, this is a good thing. If, <laughs> All right then, place to, start it to start yeah. a big argument here. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think I think that was you know our grandparents' attitude, and people who came to this country certainly after the war would go, well, keep your heads down. You know, we just don't want them to know we're here. So it'll be all be all right. We'll just be good British people, and we just won't mention all this Jewish stuff. Mm. But actually, I think these days, you look at the world that we live in now. You look at the society we live in. People are all over, all all around the place are celebrating their particular ethnic roots. Are going, yeah, we're Indian. You know, yeah, we come from, you know, Pakistan. This is this is our heritage. This is our culture. This is what we can bring. And I think actually, it's kind of a shame if as Jews we don't feel like we can do that I think we could bring real vibrancy to Britain by saying here are brilliant things and our funny things and we can laugh at ourselves and you know I think 
I think any country would be pleased to have some Jews in it. But it's, it's just not very cool, though, is it? <laughs> yeah, in well, America, you can do it. America's a different game. America, uh, you wear your ethnicity on your sleeve, you can get away with it, you can be the Beastie Boys and still be cool. You just can't, you just can't do that here. I don't know, I feel like you can do it here. And I think, actually, I see encouraging signs. You know, there's Stephen Fry going out, making his programme, saying, here are my Jewish roots. You might say to me, Stephen Fry's not cool. I think Stephen Fry's very cool. He's deeply cool. Yeah. yeah. Natasha Kaplinsky. Well, yeah. yeah that's she reads cool. the news, not just for Jews. Not just not just for Jews. And she dances and there she is with her Jewish roots. I actually think it I think I think times are a changing, as a famous Jew once said. <laughs> Here at Sounds Jewish, we like to think we've got a pretty discerning eye for what's hot on the Jewish culture scene. So here are a few things to look out for. Three Sisters on Hope Street is a Jewish reworking of the Chekhov play and was just recently transferred from Liverpool to London's Hampstead Theatre. Adapted by Diane Samuels and Tracy Ann Oberman, soon to be a guest on Sounds Jewish, of course, it's relocated from Russia to post-war Liverpool with the Holocaust as a constant backdrop. It's on until the end of this month. And Tracy Ann Oberman will be joining an illustrious panel including John Hurt at an event to discuss the shifting portrayal of the Holocaust on film, from films like Au Revoir Les Enfants through to Schindler's List and the most recently Oscar-nominated The Counterfeiters from Austria. It's happening at the ICA at the end of this month. See the Sounds Jewish website for more details. And if it helps get you along, I'm chairing it too. The Richard and Judy Book Club has recently announced its selection for 2008. Of that list, Amanda Ross, the producer behind the show, said, It's strange how the publishing world seems to move in the same direction at the same time. One year it was all Japanese novels, another everything was set in Africa, but this year all the books seem to be about either being Jewish or war or both. And finally, the Cohen brothers are set to follow up the current success of No Country for Old Men by adapting Michael Chabon's bestseller, The Yiddish Policeman's Union. It follows an alcoholic detective's investigation of a heroin-addicted chess prodigy who might be the Messiah. The story is set in a fictional Jewish settlement in Sitka, Alaska, but is about to be turned over to indigenous Alaskans. Shalom, shalom. To mark Israel's 60th anniversary year, we're running a new series called Voices of Israel, a chance to hear Israelis reflect on their own country as it turns 60. This month, we hear from Yassin Adam, who is one of Israel's most recent group of immigrants from Darfur. His English isn't brilliant, but do stick with it, because his is an extraordinary story. He speaks of his narrow escape with death in Sudan at the hands of the Janjaweed militia and how he made it into Israel, where he's just been granted an Israeli national identity card. I was born as a Muslim. I was living in a village called Bora. It is the north side of Darfur. I live with my parents, my wife, and my relatives, and the people of my village. The and the Sudanese army, they came and destroyed all our villages and killed hundreds of people, 400 men in front of my eyes, killed a lot of children. So I escaped from there. Even though Israel is officially an enemy of Sudan, Yassin took the dangerous decision to smuggle himself through northern Sinai into Israel. The only thing he carried with him were his documents proving he'd escaped from Darfur, which he then presented to the Israeli army. He was put in Israeli prison for nearly 16 months. I decided to come to, to Israel. Even I know that it is an enemy country for the Sudanese. It took me five days walking in uh, North Sinai in the mountains. After five days walking, I able to enter Israel. Yeah, when I came to Israel and I crossed the border, 
So I went there for the army because I didn't know where to go or what to do. And I have some papers showing, showing that I am from the poor. So I thought if I show it to the army, they will uh, take care of me. And then uh, I showed them my documents, but uh, they didn't beat me, but they took me to their uh, base near the border. And then they sent me, sent me to uh, Masiao prison. And I stayed there for uh, almost uh, 16 months. While Yassin was in prison, he was afraid of being deported back to Sudan. After 16 months, he was released and taken to a kibbutz in the south of Israel, where he was made to feel very much at home. It's called Kibbutz uh, Ilot. And uh, there, discovered the, uh, the difference between the prison and the people outside the prison. I was surprised when everybody came to say hi to me, welcome to Israel, and to feel as an Israeli. One of the things Yassin particularly liked was celebrating Passover on the kibbutz, and he explains how he understood and identified with the story of Passover and the Jewish exodus from slavery in Egypt, similar, he says, to the suffering he and others have endured in Darfur. We celebrate Passover, and uh, we're a group from Darfur, and we sang with them like... Uh, because we understood the meaning and it is similar to our uh, situation and therefore and our suffering there until we come to Israel. I think I can find my place here. Why? Because here everybody wants to give hand, to offer hand for helping. And uh, I'm working, um, I have an ID like... Uh, even if it's temporary, but it has some rights for me, like social rights. I have a chance to educate, to learn something. And uh, so I think if I have this program for myself, I have a good chance to do something. He says one of the most moving places for him has been Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. All the photos and pictures of the Holocaust there, he says, remind him of the suffering in Darfur. Yassin says he finds great similarities between the Jewish struggle for a homeland 60 years ago and his own struggle to build his own country back in Darfur. When I went to Holocaust Museum, I was invited to share in a lecture and the title is uh, Collective Actions about Holocaust and genocide. And before the lecture, I went over all the museum and saw the pictures. And most of the pictures is a picture of suffering. It re really reminds me with some pictures that I have seen in Darfur. Darfur is our own place for the poor people. So we are looking forward to get from their experience to build our own country. Well, I thought that was an incredibly moving story uh, there from Yassin, one of the many stories happening in Israel uh, at its 60th anniversary. Uh, Naomi, of course, Israel was a country founded on immigrants, and in recent decades we've had Ethiopians, uh, Russians, and now uh, obviously Darfuris. Uh, does this create a fractured society, or is assimilation a simple issue? Assimilation is never a simple issue, is it? Um... I think, I think one could hope that Israel will be able to find strength from these various different communities. And, of course, 
the, I mean, the creation of that sort of cohesive society, whatever one might think about the political situation in Israel, has been a really great success story. And Israel, certainly of any country in the world, I think is probably the best set up for immigrants to come and, and, and be received into society. So hopefully they'll be able to manage it. But yes, I think I think certainly Israel's Israel's feeding the strain of, mm. of um, Russian immigration and, and various other immigrations over the past 20 years I or mean, so. It's, it's striking how separate some of the Russian communities. I mean, I was mm. in Israel uh, a couple of months ago and, and there are whole areas where it is just flooded with Russian and you you, know, you don't have to learn Hebrew mm. well, if it's to be there. There is a kind of Russian society you can just exist in. But all the Darfuris are not Jewish and Israel is accepting people now who aren't necessarily Jewish on a humanitarian grounds. Mm. Uh, is that, that's a sign of a, of a healthy nation, I'd have thought, rather than one that can just, just kind of say, bring me all your Jews, we need Jews. It needs people. Really? I wonder how many... Darfurian refugees they would take in, or is it just those mm. that can actually manage to pitch up at the border? But there is there is this Jewish sort of Darfurian movement that's going on. I mean, I went to something at the Tricycle in, in North mm. London uh, a month or two ago, which was a Jewish day of action, really, mm. a, around Darfur. So th- there does seem to be a bit of uh, g- genocidal sort of bonhomie going on here. Yes, I think I think there's certainly a feeling. I mean, I mean, I know a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people who are working for. Um, charities that are involved with Darfur for this reason who want to go and volunteer for exactly that reason they feel that there's some sort of bond and to be able to say you know when we say never again we actually mean it Mm. and to then go and and take some action for that That is unfortunately all we've got time for on this month's Sounds Jewish Naomi Alderman uh, Tim Samuels a great thanks to you for your time and for coming in and of course to our sponsors the Jewish Community Centre for London from me Jason Solomons goodbye Shalom, shalom.